Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Pactum. I'm Pat Abendroth, joined together again with Mike Grimes. And today's show is going to be on theonomy. Theonomy. Today we're talking about theonomy. Theonomy comes from two English words. No, it doesn't. It comes from two Greek words, theos for God and namas for law. So theonomy, I guess since I like God and Mike, you like law, uh, we think God's law is good and God is good. So I guess theonomy is good. Maybe we're both theonomists. We're theonomists. We can close it up. Okay, go ahead. Roll the show notes or whatever you're (laughs) supposed to do. Roll the credits uh, because we're all done. We're both theonomists and we're going to promote theonomy. But maybe that's not the case, maybe and we're going to have case, a long right. episode, right. as a matter yeah. of fact. We're titled, we titled the episode, Saying No to Theonomy. So. Saying No to Theonomy is what this episode is all about, and so we should talk about what it is. It does actually come from two good words, theonomy, we're all for God, we're all for, for law, uh, but that's not what R.J. Rush Dooney or Greg Bonson or other proponents of the philosophy or theological approach called theonomy mean. Uh, so those are a couple of the big names, the big hitters. Some would even refer to, well, if you Google searched uh, theonomy, you might find Rush Dooney, the founder, or if you Google him, the founder, he died in 2001 to give a little time perspective. Uh, Greg Bonson died in 1995. I tend to think of Greg Bonson as the one who at least is most popular when it comes uh, to the topic of theonomy. Yeah. So what is theonomy actually, Mike? Theonomy would be the approach in which you're going to take the Bible and you're going to apply it. I I like it so far. Yeah, this is good. It's all a good thing, right? We think the Bible is true. Theonomists think the Bible is true. They want to apply the Bible. Yep, they're going to apply the Bible, but they're going to apply the Bible in a way that's going to seek to make the Mosaic law the law of the land. So what we read in the Old Testament that was given to Moses, given to Israel, um, this would be for all people including the government, state. Uh, It would not just be for Israel. It would be the law for all people at all times. That would be theonomy. Okay. So I guess um, in one sense, it sounds good because we need government. Right. And there's an example of civil government in the Bible, uh, in the Mosaic law. So that sounds good. We, we, We want to be biblical. So there's law in the Bible, civil government in the Bible. So it's inspired. It came from God. It's authoritative. We need government today, civil government today. So in one sense, I want to say, sounds good. Everything yeah. we need to know about everything is in the Bible, uh, and it talks about a certain kind of civil, civil government. Uh, so let's roll with it. Yeah. But I also want to say not so fast. Right. Right. Uh, I want to say not so fast, even when we say everything we need to know about everything is in the Bible. Yeah. That sounds pious. It sounds good. I kind of want to sign up for that. But in reality, maybe that's not actually the case. Yeah. In fact, maybe the Bible is first and foremost, or let me say the Old Testament is not designed to give us a blueprint for civil government. Uh, instead, it's actually all about the unfolding drama of redemption that anticipates fulfillment in Christ. Mm. And that actually was why we had that Mosaic law. And that is actually why we had the nation of Israel in anticipation of the one who would come, who would be the faithful servant. Right. Well, let's talk more about that. Uh, as we go. But just to to start out right away, I'm already feeling a sense of pushback uh, to theonomy because I I don't think the Bible's meant to be a blueprint for everything, not to mention civil government. Sure. Maybe another reason why I want to offer initial pushback, and we're not even to our reasons for saying no to theonomy yet, but even initially, 
in a naive sense, I want to say as a Bible-believing Christian, okay, uh, civil government in the Bible, we need civil government, I'm in. But that probably shows some naivete. Yes. Because uh, it, and I'm not saying theonomists are naive. Right, uh, yeah. I think Greg Bonson is not naive. Right, he, right. he knows this to be the case. But I think as Mr. or Mrs. Casual Christian who doesn't have a perfect memory, um, they say, oh, yeah, let's do that Old Testament law today. Yeah. If I ask them if they would like to have our current governor yep. here in Nebraska, if we would like to have him stoned to death for being an idolater, right? because he is from where I sit in my Protestant seat. Yep. <laughs> he pointed to his chair for those of you who can't see. I don't think everybody. there is such a thing as a Protestant seat, <laughs> but as a Protestant from where I sit, uh, our current governor, who I'm thankful for and respect, and I think he's done some good things as a governor, yes, I yeah. don't want him stoned right, for no, being yeah. an idolater. Yep. Uh, in fact, I would like to have him remain in office, and I would like to evangelize him, right, is yes. what I would like to do. But, but according to... But, but according to Theonomy... That's what ought to have taken place if we really carried that out to the full extent. I think logically so. Now, again, they may nuance it and say, well, maybe not right away or something like that. So sure. everybody's on board. But Leviticus 24, uh, let's, let's stone the idolaters. Right, yeah. I don't think most people uh, are going to say, that. yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's, yeah. let's get after that right away. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling a little bit warmed up now when it comes to objections, and so I suppose we can move on now to our 10 reasons for saying no to theonomy. Well, look, Pat, why don't we first, uh, I'm thinking of listeners, they might even be thinking, why is this even a thing? Why are we even talking about theonomy? Why, why talk about Leave it? it to you to be missional, Mike. I, well, So you know. I'm thankful that you're a missional person, and you're <laughs> thinking how others would be perceiving yes. this yeah. so that you might help them. Way to go. <laughs> why talk about it? I think uh, we should talk about it today because theonomy is resurging today. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be trending, uh, even is. if it's not trending on Twitter. <laughs> even from people uh, in circles where we would find it surprising. Yeah. And so people I have known and respected, uh, all of a sudden out of left field, uh, maybe it's right field, I don't know, um, are seemingly promoting theonomy and theonomists. And that's puzzling to me. It's troubling to me. Uh, yes, I don't think our country's in a good state. Mm. Uh, I don't think antinomianism is good. Right. Uh, so I do like God and I do like God's law. Right, right. But at the same time, I'm going to have to say no to theonomy. So we're going to talk about it today because it is a thing and it seems to be a thing that's trending, especially when we are at a place where lots of us don't like the state of our current civil society. Yeah. Yeah. So they maybe even see theonomy as an answer to that. And so they take God's law, which is a good thing we're saying, uh, but they take it and try to apply it in areas where that's not what it's there for. And that's not what God's purpose was in that law. So we want to be careful with yep, that. Yep. Sounds good. Let's go to number one. Uh, the first point of objection that I'm going to have personally to theonomy. So I'm saying no to theonomy because theonomy's proponents have had a history a long history. Well, it's not that old, so not too long of a history, mm -hmm. but they have had a history of getting justification wrong. Mm. You might be thinking, uh, what does what justification yeah. have to do, what does that have to do with, with theonomy? theonomy? And I think that's a, a, a good question. I suppose it doesn't have to have anything to do with it. Right. I do think you could be a theonomist and have justification right. Yes. And if you are such a theonomist, you're my favorite kind. Yes. <laughs> 
That said, since theonomy deals with law and justification deals with law, maybe there's some relationship there. Sure. Uh, to be justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared a keeper of God's law. But so that, that they have that in common, but I don't think that one necessitates another. And yet theonomist after theonomist after theonomist after theonomist <laughs> seems to get justification wrong. And I'm saying it nicely. They get justification sola fide by grace alone, through faith alone on account of the finished work of Christ alone wrong. Yeah. Which is no small thing. No, that's a major deal. This is a major foul. This is a major, I mean, if we're really going to get justification uh, wrong, we are in danger of being under the anathema of Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine. Yeah. And so I'm thankful for the, again, anyone who gets justification, right, whether they be a theonomist or something else, but I have to be honest and say, my biggest pushback to theonomy is their leaders after leader, after leader get this doctrine wrong. So I'm really, really cautious about trusting them for anything else. Right. Puts up a red flag for sure. When we see someone that we're reading their justification and view of justification is wrong, it kind of puts up the red flag so that are we sure we want to go with the other areas of doctrine and theology that they teach? Yep, absolutely. And one key figure in all of this that theonomist after theonomist endorses, promotes, defends, and gives shelter to would be a man named Norman Shepard. Hmm. And if you're not familiar with Norman Shepard, uh, there's a whole thing called the Shepherd Controversy. Books have been written about it. Um, he was a professor at Westminster Se Seminary in Philadelphia from 1963 to 1981. And without any question in my mind, Norman Shepard taught that justification is by faith and works. Mm. Faith and works. And yet who defends Shepard? Well, Greg Bonson de defends Shepard, even according to Greg, and there's some debate about this, but I'll side with Greg Bonson's son, probably knowing more about his father than anyone else. Yeah. He says, Greg Bonson repudiated the notion that Norman Shepard was a heretic and in fact embraced the core thesis of his work on justification, faith and works, the heart of the controversy. Mm. End of quotation. If that's the case, that is that is seriously troubling, yeah. and it seems to be the case. Yeah, that's troubling. Andrew Sandlin, who is someone that current theonomists seem to uh, really promote and hype and talk about and admire, uh, Sandlin, in his article called Gospel Law and Redemptive History, uh, teaches in no uncertain terms, eternal life is by faith accompanied by obedience. Mm -hmm. There's another massive problem yeah. if you're doing that. And he cites Norman Shepard positively in that very article and seemingly sides with Norman Shepard and his view of salvation being by, by faith and works. We might say faith and faithfulness. Mm. Uh, it leads to salvation. And that's not Protestant. That's not biblical. That's an assault and an attack on justification sola fide. And if our listeners don't want to take our word for it, that Shepard uh, was playing for the wrong team, mm -hmm. uh, you can listen to the appeal of someone like R.C. Sproul, yeah. who would be in agreement uh, with such a thing. Or if you're not wanting to listen to R.C. Sproul, uh, how about Martin Lloyd-Jones yeah. when he was asked about this? The whole, the whole Shepard controversy led to 
the, as I recall, the board at the seminary reaching out to different significant theologians asking for help and mm -hmm. thinking through the issues. And so that's why Sproul is involved and that's why other people are involved. Uh, a whole list of credible Protestant reformed theologians uh, and man after man saying, oh, yeah, that's that's Roman Catholic justification. Yeah. Uh, that That's not. That's not biblical. That's not reformed. Right. That's outside of the pale. Uh, and Lloyd Jones weighed in on this. And to sum up, this is from February February thirteenth, nineteen eighty, from Lloyd Jones. Uh, he said, "Shepherd, remove the scandal from the preaching of justification and its inevitable subjection to the charge of antinomianism. His teaching is a subtle form of legalism, and eventually is Lloyd Jones, Lloyd -Jones calls it another gospel." He goes on to say that his teaching. Shepherd's teaching that is defended and promoted by theonomist after theonomist, his teaching is contrary to that of the evangelicals of the last 400 years, and he seems to rejoice in this. Mm. He goes on to say that to teach students this at the seminary is tragically wrong. And maybe let's hear from one more voice on this. Uh, J.I. Packer says, Shepherd, in effect, reinvented the neonomianism of Richard Baxter in the 17th century. So before we move on, as you brought up earlier, Mike, we don't want to say that theonomy necessitates being wrong on sola fide. Right. But it is really strange when the key leaders, and it's key leader after key leader, promotes a wrong view of justification. Yeah. I, I at least am very troubled. It is, as you said, a red flag. Yeah. And I, I as pastoring a church, when people start talking about people who are theonomists, I want to warn them because now you're reading people and you're being influenced by people who are gospel deniers. Yes, yeah. And so be very, very careful right, about lightly. what you're up yeah. to. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Well, maybe let's move on to the second uh, reason that we're saying no to theonomy. Which is like the first, but a little bit different. <laughs> a little bit different. This is theonomy's leaders have had a history of rejecting classic covenant theology. Indeed, they have. Uh, Sandlin says in that article, again, Gospel Law and Redemptive History, uh, that he is at odds with traditional covenant theology. Mm -hmm. He points that out himself. He rejects the covenant of works. He rejects the category of merit altogether, siding with Shepherd, uh, and he has grace before the fall. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're not familiar with classic covenant theology, maybe it sounds like I'm speaking in tongues, and I'm not, <laughs> but these things end up... Maybe I can cut to the chase and say, time and time again, when people drift away from classic covenant theology, it seems to be built in that they are going to end up, once again, denying justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Yeah. It doesn't necessitate it, but when you, again, move grace before the fall, yeah. uh, and you end up having time and time again, you have a problem because you're mixing God's strict re requirement of do this and live, obey the law for eternal life, and somehow having it graciously provided to you. And the matter of merit actually is fascinating because uh, Sandlin references Shepherd, but he says, there is simply no such thing as a meritorious basis of eternal life. Hmm. And there is no such thing as a meritorious soteriology or doctrine of salvation. Hmm. So no place for merit whatsoever. And he knows that classic covenant theology has a category for merit. It's do this and live, Adam, right. uh, in light of what Jesus says. And so it is by his obedience 
just as it is through, oh, well, it's through his disobedience that condemnation came. Right. But in Romans 5, it's through Christ's obedience. Well, that's a synonym for, for merit. Yes. And what happens time and time again with people who deny the category of merit is they still have merit. Hmm. Where do you think they find the merit? Where do they, where do they put the merit? Right. It's on themselves. It's they put in their it, own obedience. They put it in their own obedience, and now it's justification by faith and works as Sandlin promotes. Yeah. So everyone has a category for merit. Yes. Let's make sure we have a category for merit. It's either based upon the merits of Christ or somehow our merits, whether it's with God's help or without God's help, it's still our merit. And now salvation is not altogether of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So like clockwork, whether it's Shepherd, Sandlin, Bonson, Boot, or others, when you somehow tinker with classic covenant theology, with covenant of works, covenant of grace, and they're very distinct and very different, you're ending, you, you will end up compromising sola fide, and it is a bad look. Yes, very much. So here's a good bad example by Joseph Boot, who is someone who current theonomists are fawning over uh, as uh, brilliant regarding God's creation covenant with Adam. He says it was, quote, a covenant of grace. Mm. To walk with God as Adam and Eve initially did is to live by grace. We should remember the good news is that God is covenant Lord and King. I'm going to stop right there for a moment and put my finger on the quote. It's not a, it's not good news that God is yeah. covenant Lord and King, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Um, it might be good Yes. Because it's good for him to be who he is, but it's not gospel news. Right. Uh, it's not gospel news for Adam and Eve. So he says it's good news. The good news is that God is covenant Lord and King. Adam and Eve's obedience did not justify them. Well, that's true, right? Because they were disobedient. disobedient right. But the reality is their obedience was to justify yes, them. Yeah. Read this in light of Romans 5. I'll continue on with a quote. In other words, there has never been a covenant of works as such. Hmm. That's Joseph Boot in his book, Gospel Culture, Living in God's Kingdom, page 66. Hmm. Well, that gets my dander up and it gets my ire up because that's not classic covenant theology. Uh, It's blurring the lines. And now all of a sudden, uh, a la, this is very shepherd-esque as well as other theonomists, uh, all of a sudden now we've collapsed everything together and now we have what is oftentimes labeled as monocovenantalism. So classic covenant theology protects the gospel and I think it also reflects the true teaching of the Bible uh, that justification is based upon merit. It is based upon obedience. It's based upon the obedience of one of two Adams and the first Adam disobeyed, led to condemnation. The second Adam, the last Adam, Romans 5, obeyed and it led to justification right and yet here we have this grace beforehand before the fall right. uh and you have what is in effect what people would label as mono covenantalism yeah and if these categories are new to you um no problem you're welcome to keep listening we're trying <laughs> to help you but traditionally we're going to have bi covenantalism uh when we view how justification works not mono covenantalism so, Pat, this is one of the reasons that you wrote your dissertation on covenant theology, is it not? It is. I had no plan on writing a dissertation on covenant, classic covenant theology, and yet I studied justification, and it's always been an interest of mine. And the more you go down that rabbit, right, hole, rabbit hole, you find out the people who have successfully in church history promoted and defended 
the Protestant doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, they end up being people who are not monocovenantal. Right. Uh, they are bicovenantal, and history shows it again and again and again. So I never thought I would write on covenant theology, but they're the protectors. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones who seem to get this right. And so when theonomists look like monocovenantalists, it's no wonder uh, that they end up doing our number three objection, yes. uh, which would be they have a history also, and this is related to number two, but now we're on number three. They have a history of collapsing law and gospel. Yes. And I think there's a pretty good podcast episode on Law and Gospel. I think I've heard of it before. It might be uh, our second episode. Episode number two of the Pactum. If you want to get Law and Gospel straight, you can go there. Uh, And we'll solve all your problems, right? (laughs) As soon as Greg Bonson listens to it, I think he'll give us five stars. There you go. And since we're in the mode of uh, quoting Sandlin, uh, we'll quote Sandlin on this very issue of collapsing law and gospel. Sandlin says, quote, there is no fundamental gospel law distinction. That's, that's, that's about as clear as you can be to deny that, that. That's about clear enough to make me spit or have throw up in my mouth. It's, um, it's bad. No law gospel, or he says gospel law distinction. Yeah. So it's no wonder that he also says, get this. I hope our listeners are being discerning when it comes to the clarity of this statement and the clear wrongheadedness of it. Hmm. Here's the quote. When Jesus himself was asked what the great commandment of the law was, he replied, it is to love the Lord God with all one's heart, soul, and mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. This is not fundamentally different from the message of the gospel. How about that? I, I, I want to keep reading, but I want to stop myself. So the law is not fundamentally different from the gospel. You heard it here, but it's not because we're promoting it. We're criticizing it. Yeah. He goes on to say a couple of lines later, the heart of the law is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Category confusion. It's absolute category confusion. That's a great way to to label it. He says there's fundamental unity. This means when you boil it right down, there is no fundamental distinction between gospel and law. It's no wonder he gets justification wrong. And yet in the same vein, Bonson endorsed Fuller, Daniel Fuller, that is, in his rejection of the Protestant distinction between law and gospel. And so that is a problem as well. So Fuller comes along and he doesn't like what dispensationalists have done because they've divided up the Bible in so many different dispensations. Fuller overreacts and says, flattens the whole thing and it's all the same. Mm. It's all law and gospel. It's all gospel. And so, uh, and ends up denying justification by grace alone through faith alone, Fuller does. And then Bonson comes along and says, I have been persuaded by Dan Fuller. Hmm. So this problem runs deep and it ends up being a gospel problem. Yeah. So once again, Pat, before we move on, we just want to highlight and say again that these first three that we've highlighted, these first three reasons we've been going through, they're red flags of Look at what these theonomists may be believing and teaching and holding to when it comes to soteriology. So what do they teach the gospel is? What does they what is it they understand justification to be? Is it by grace through faith in Christ or is it by faith and works? And so we just want to encourage our listeners before you follow a theonomist and go down that rabbit trail of theonomy, you're going to want to check their soteriology and you're going to want to make sure that it's up to snuff with 
covenant theology, with law-gospel distinctions, with justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. We just want to raise that red flag and make sure that we have that out from the outset. So you may be thinking, I thought this was a theonomy episode. I thought I was going to be enlightened on theonomy. And we're getting there. We're we're definitely getting there. But if you can't get the law figured out when it comes to being justified, I think there's reason for concern and great concern when when it comes to understanding civil law and how it applies. How are you going to apply the law in other areas? Yeah. So we're under the potential condemnation of Galatians 1. Yes. Uh, and now all of a sudden, I'm not too trusting of what you're going to tell me about civil government or yes. civil law, because right. you can't even figure out law for justification. Yeah, yeah. So before we move on, we just want to highlight that. We want to make sure you understand why we're talking about those things in a theonomy episode. But let's keep going for now and get to maybe a fourth reason, and that is the nation of Israel was unique. Okay, let's move on to number five. Why would there be a debate about whether or not the nation of Israel uh, was unique? Of course, the nation of Israel is unique. Uh, I like what T. David Gordon said, and we'll put his article in the show notes. He said, now plainly, the duties of a given covenant are only obligatory on those who are parties to the covenant. Again, plainly, the duties of a given covenant are only obligatory on those who are parties to the covenant. So God makes a covenant. Mm -hmm. The Mosaic covenant is with a particular people, and it's not universal. It has to do with the people of Israel right? so that they would be a nation. So let's start out there on the real simple side of things. Israel is Israel, and God makes a covenant with Israel. Israel's not afterward commissioned to Israelize. Ooh, I like making up words. Uh, They were not commissioned with Israelizing everyone else. It's for good reason. They're called a holy nation. Right. They're a different nation. Yes. But they're not commissioned with Israelizing all of the nations as a matter of fact. And if we can make up some more words, even when they're in exile— Uh, Their fundamental mission uh, is not given to them to somehow Zionize Babylon. Zionize, I like that. You know, Pat, you don't don't get the sense when you're reading the Old Testament that it was ever God's intention to place the whole world under the Mosaic Covenant. Bingo is what I say to that. And that's worth thinking about. It's worth repeating. It's worth reading your Bible with your brain turned on, not as an answer book to every problem that we have ever. Again, we're reading it about redemptive history, and you read about the holy nation of Israel, and they are in a unique kind of covenant relationship with God, Mm -hmm. and they, well, I said it, a unique covenant relationship with God. And so I think you nailed it, and we can probably leave that one alone, only to encourage our friends, our listeners to, to stop and think about the uniqueness. They weren't the only nation. Yeah, right. They weren't the only people on planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, they had a unique relationship with God that not all of the people did. Yeah. And I don't think we take that just common sense approach into account enough. Yeah. Let's move on to number five. And this fifth reason for saying no to theonomy would be that the nation of Israel's unique role was typological, mm. or if you prefer, if you're from the wrong side of the tracks, you can say typological. <laughs> Either one, uh, they had a unique role. And I think we've already alluded to this. But when you read Colossians 2, we, we, we learn about the shadows, and then we learn about the things to come with the substance belonging to Christ. Right. So when I learn about the nation of Israel, I'm thinking typological, yes. I'm thinking looking forward, I'm thinking 
that is what they are in a holistic sense. And then when I get to the book of Hebrews, we see something similar. Uh, Those old things serve as a copy, as a shadow of heavenly things. And Christ, Christ is the substance. He's the one who brings the fulfillment. And so I think it's, it's a misinterpretation, a misreading of the law, Romans chapter, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. Same sort of thing. Uh, we should be looking past the shadow. Right. Uh, all of the shadowy things are true. Yes. All of them are important, and they're even beneficial for us to learn from. They're profitable, to quote Second Timothy chapter 3, but they're looking forward. They're never meant to be the end game. Right. So in this sense, it's sort of like the same problem with dispensationalism. Hmm. Uh, we're we're going to go back to the shadows. Right, right. When we don't want to go back to the shadows, the substance belongs to Christ. Right. The nation of Israel was meant to be in anticipation of the one who would be the faithful servant, yeah. the faithful son, unlike Israel. So, Pat, continuing on with a sixth reason why we would say no to theonomy and continuing on with Israel, we talked about how Israel was unique and how their unique role was a typological role. But a sixth reason we would say no to theonomy is that the unique nation of Israel had unique laws for them. They absolutely have unique laws for them. They weren't laws that were to be mandated on the rest of the world. Right which is pretty obvious in the old, in the old Testament. And in addition, then when we move beyond the nation of Israel and we have Christ, the temple, uh, so now we have substance Mm -hmm. and now we have new covenant and we move forward. Uh, we see that those unique food laws, for example, let's use those that were for the holy nation of Israel now no longer apply new covenant reality. So we go, uh, we, we see quite a contrast, quite a difference between Leviticus 11 in Acts chapter 10. Right. So there is a distinction. They have unique laws because they're a unique nation. That makes all of the sense in the world. And it also makes all of the sense in the world that when we move into the church age, mm-hmm. if we can say it that way, new covenant people of God, mm-hmm. uh, Jew and Gentile, the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, believers in Jesus, uh, we no longer have those laws. Uh, they're gone. So unique laws because we're talking about a unique nation serving a unique purpose. Right. Now let's move on to number seven. Uh, another reason for rejecting theonomy. We're not saying you listeners need to reject theonomy, right. uh, but we are saying we do yes. personally, mm-hmm. and we're not promoting or recommending theonomists uh, in the church where we pastor. Right. And number seven is because the Bible is not intended to address every matter in life. That might sound blasphemous to some, but I'll say it again. We do not believe the Bible is intended to address every matter in life. Hmm. If it were to address every matter in life, then we wouldn't have a category for wisdom, which comes from experience, either your own experience or the experience of others. And yet the Bible talks positively about wisdom and even learning from older people. Uh, You don't have to, it's it's not a matter of, I don't need anybody because I have my Bible. Right. Yeah. Uh, Uh, And also things like prayer and prayer for wisdom. So I think we need to shock people if need be to say the Bible is not intended to address everything. Mm. It is true. All of it. It's beneficial. All of it. It's applicable, but not all immediately applicable. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't address everything. 
And here's where we need to dig in a little bit, and maybe we should gain some insight from someone else who's written about this. We'll put this article in the show notes as well. It's quite helpful. It's brief. It's to the point. It's by Lee Irons. So let's work through this a uh, few paragraphs from Lee Irons regarding this matter of the Bible is true and important and relevant and applicable, but not applicable for everything. And it doesn't address every matter in life. Right. Yeah. You want to go ahead and start, Mike? Yeah. He says, no doubt the Bible... I'm remaining in the wings, poised to interrupt you. You're ready. You, I'm ready so you for know. you at any moment. Jump in and take charge. Here we go. No doubt the Bible contains many general principles that are to be observed, but why should it be regarded as a detailed blueprint for society? After all, we don't go to the Bible to find specific directions for other equally important human endeavors, such as art and architecture, literature, the culinary arts, medicine, technology, etc. I think the Gospel Coalition had something on making gospel-centered cupcakes, cupcakes for a while. Yes, so they I, did. Maybe there, maybe there are some theonomists in there. Possible. I don't know, but... Possible. Okay, okay, keep going. Okay, Irons continues. The Westminster Confession acknowledges that there are areas of life, quote, which are to be ordered by the light of nature. Ah, uh, he's quoting from the Westminster Confession. Yes. And Christian prudence according to the general rules of the world, which are always to be observed. So in Reformed theology, there is a good and robust category for things like the light of nature, uh, things like Christian prudence, yeah. common sense, yep. wisdom is what they're talking about there in the Westminster Confession. Right. Irons goes on to say the no other standard argument, that would be the argument, Pat, that there's no other standard but the Bible. Bonson wrote a book on this, right, called the no other standard. I think or, so. Yeah, it's definitely the hashtag, the theonomy hashtag. Yes. Uh, it's the no other standard argument. So yeah. by what other standard? If you don't follow the biblical standard, uh, by what other standard? And, sh and the implication is there uh, somehow it's bad right. because it didn't come from the Bible. So right. go ahead and keep yep. going with so that. So Iron says the no other standard argument assumes that special revelation in Scripture is the only divinely approved standard for questions pertaining to civil government and legislation. Any other standard would of necessity involve a reliance on mere human ideas instead of God's, and that is nothing less than autonomy. The difficulty with this assumption... Uh, hold on a second. So that's, that's another big thing with theonomists. In case our listeners aren't aware, it's either theonomy or autonomy. Yes. So Bonson is big on that, and he got it from Van Til. Uh, and so it puts you in a bind because, well, if it's not theonomy, it's autonomy. Right. Which I would agree to in one sense. Um, if it's not from God and God's law, then it must come from you. Mm -hmm. The problem is uh, God has created the world in such a way where we're all accountable to him, whether or not we have the Mosaic law or not. Yep. So we're not autonomous, but there was law even before there, were, there was Mosaic law. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. It's either theonomy or autonomy, but I can affirm that because everything comes from God, yeah. but it's not the philosophy known as theonomy. Okay. Right. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. I promise I'll be a good kid now. <laughs> Irons continues, the difficulty with this assumption is that it proves too much. It proves too much. Yes. Yep. You're supposed to be good over there. Oh, if sorry. autonomy is narrowly defined as the use in any sphere of ideas not specifically revealed in Scripture, then we will be paralyzed by inaction, since the Scripture simply contains very little information about vast areas of human thought and action. Scripture is not sufficient. Oh. Wow. 
We should make that a soundbite. Scripture is not sufficient. Let's read that in context. Pastor Mike Grimes says it. See, the Theonomists all busted you. You are on record as saying, as is Lee Iron, Scripture is not sufficient. Okay, keep going. It is not sufficient for the art of cologne and perfume manufacture, (laughs) although one particular recipe is given in the Mosaic Law, found in Exodus 30, verses 23 through 25. Does that mean we should only make... The Levitical perfume. I see a business venture. Oh, man. Uh, this is good. I'm sure somebody's done it. They probably have. Uh-huh. Iron says, are all other non-biblical All scents? animals used in testing were treated ethically. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are all other non-biblical sins autonomous and sinful? <laughs> what about the proper treatment of... Leprosy. Are all attempts of modern medicine to find a cure to be rejected in favor of the specific guidelines laid down in the Mosaic case law in Leviticus 13 and 14? Examples such as these could be multiplied. Theonomy or autonomy. I like it that Irons is busting their chops. It seems too obvious to point out, he says, but the Bible was never intended to provide specific information and guidance regarding the vast majority of human spheres of thought and action. That's worth thinking about. These common grace spheres, oh, Boot doesn't like common grace. He keeps making fun of it in his book. Mm. These common grace spheres belong to the natural order and are pretty much up to us to figure out on our own using the common sense, reason, and scientific abilities that God has given to mankind Mm. and we're accountable for. So it's not autonomy. It is not denied that the Bible contains general principles that apply to all areas of life. The most important being whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10. But the scripture is, oh, here we go again. You're going to say it this time. Not sufficient (laughs) to provide practical, detailed guidance for the sphere of common grace. That sphere is to be guided by the quote from the Westminster Confession again, the light of nature. Yeah. So I'm tempted to to skip this final paragraph that we have here, Mike, from Irons, uh, but maybe we should go ahead and read it because he does say something important and profound about the sufficiency yes, of Scripture. Yeah, we should highlight uh, this. Maybe before you read the last quote from him, though, I posted something yesterday on Twitter about talking about theonomy, and a fellow podcaster friend uh, said they were looking forward to it and that they were going to be interviewing Lee Irons for their podcast you know, <laughs> next week or whatever. So I guess if you don't have him to interview, you just, just quote read him stuff, right? for yep. hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so um, we are that podcast. Yep. Um, but I think, Mike, you should go ahead and read this okay. last quote. Properly defined, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture states that the Bible is, quote, the only rule of faith and obedience, end quote. That's from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Directing us how we may glorify and enjoy God, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. In other words, as Paul states, the primary purpose of Scripture is to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, citing 2 Timothy 3.15. Since we've already said that the Bible isn't sufficient a couple of times, uh, and people are going to use that against us, um, <laughs> there is not a Bible, Bible verse for everything. There's not, yep. And so sometimes that's hard for people to hear because as a brand new Christian, I, I kind of thought there was. I thought, you know, the, I was told by people, even popular speakers, that the Bible has an answer for every question sure, you've yeah. ever had. It's yeah. the rule book for life. As long as you just follow this book, this book is all you need. And historically, that's not what 
Protestants have meant by the sufficiency of Scripture, right. number one. Uh, and there are so many things in the Bible that were, were not told, yep. and it's just left up to us. And all of this brings me to a gift I have for you today, Mike. Oh, wow. uh, and so I have here in my hand, maybe listeners can hear the baggie or not, a Ziploc baggie. And I'm going to throw it over to Mike across the table. You it's can a, even, it's a piece of bread. It's a piece of it's bread. One slice of bread. It's not the bread of life. It's not the bread. But of it life. is a piece of bread, and, and it, you can even smell you can it, smell it through the bag. Through the bag, and and when I tell you what kind of bread it is, I think you're going to regret picking it up, and you're going to regret smelling it, because <laughs> that is Ezekiel four nine bread. Oh, uh huh. <laughs> That's Ezekiel four nine bread. And so when we think the Bible is uh, a book that gives us the answers to everything, and yes. the only way we can figure out how to make bread, let's say, yep. would be for it to be biblical bread. Yes. Uh, we have Ezekiel 4-9 bread that I bought at my local grocer. So Ezekiel 4-9 bread, I actually like it. So please don't sue us if you're the company who has <laughs> Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Uh, I'll give you a plug. I like it. I keep it in the freezer. I had a piece of it today, as a matter of fact. Um, but if it really, truly were Ezekiel 4-9 bread, yeah. if we read Ezekiel 4-12, we would hear in the context, uh, this bread is to be baked on human dung. Oh, How about that? You're wishing you wouldn't have picked I it up, I and now you're wondering that. why it you smells like that. that. Stuff, man. Well, thankfully, it's not Ezekiel four nine bread <laughs> in a biblical not. sense. No. Um, but I wanted—I thought of it as a, as a great stupid example of what happens when we do say, "Oh, we have to make everything biblical," yeah. and then we're going to make Ezekiel four nine bread. And then, well, if it really were Ezekiel four nine bread, yeah. I think you have to eat it three hundred and ninety days in a row, and you have to cook it on your poop. <laughs> <laughs> So now theonomists don't do this and they don't promote this, but I want to point out how ridiculous it can become when we think the Bible has an answer for everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, It has an answer for the most important thing. Right. Right. uh, And it gives guidance in all things so that we can do things for the glory of God. But we have to know when the Bible is said to be profitable and all of it is profitable, it's not all directly applicable. Yeah. It might just be profitable to learn about the nation of Israel sure, as yeah. they anticipate Christ yep, yep. Or, or something like that. Yeah. Well, Pat, let's keep rolling on here with our reasons. Now uh, that, that we've, we've lost our appetites. Right, that we would say no to theonomy. And let's get to our eighth, ninth, and tenth ones. Number eight, uh, Bonson's interpretation of Matthew 5 is pretty suspect. I think so. So if you read Bonson, he's going to reference Matthew 5 uh, again and again and again. And I think I've said that again and again and again during this episode. Yeah. But I'll say it again. He says it again, again and, and again, again and again. <laughs> so Matthew five seventeen ends up being a key interpretive aspect of Bonson's theonomy. So we have to have the law, the Mosaic law, and we have to have it always and forever abiding Mm -hmm. uh, and intact and binding is the word I was looking for. So here's what Matthew 5.17 says. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. And then he goes on to say, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mm. And so Bonson really takes a lot of time and focuses on the word fulfill, and he, he spends time on dealing with the Greek word, plerao, and he wants to render it not as the classic traditional fulfill, but as something more like ratify. Mm. Uh, in fact, he's going to essentially argue, as I would understand it, uh, it's somehow confirming the law. Mm. Uh, it's not fulfilling the law, it's ratifying, it's confirming. Uh, in, in my verbiage, 
it just makes it all the clearer and stronger, but in no sense is there a sense of fulfillment as in ending. Hmm. So that's my, the best of my recollection. And I say, actually play Ra'o, if I'm honest, you can look it up in multiple Greek dictionaries and you could build a case for uh, it being something like confirm or something like ratify. I think you can build that case, but I don't because... I'm a Protestant. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I know where he goes with it right, and I know right. where he gets himself into trouble. And in reality, this is a classic proof text. And I mean that in a good way for the fact that Christ fulfilled the law, right? The obligation is do this and live. And Christ did this yeah. so that we could live so right. that we could have eternal life. And knowing that he gets justification wrong and knowing that he makes all of those fouls and so many other people do who are theonomous, uh, I, I, I'm not buying it. Yeah. And so I'm going to side with others who would say uh, it almost never means confirm, but it means to fulfill. I'm going to say something like that. I'm going to be careful with uh, saying, well, Greek always and never. Mm. I think that's not honest. But knowing the trajectory, knowing where he goes with it, I'm going to go for the classic traditional view. Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, he didn't somehow just confirm it. Hmm. Well, we better hurry up here. People are going to start tuning us out. Well, number nine, the stranger and alien paradox. Which we're going to take from First Peter chapter 2, or First Peter altogether, actually. Yeah, yep. And it is significant because First Peter, obviously writing to New Covenant believers, yep. and yet he refers to believers as sojourners and exiles, or strangers and aliens, if you're using an older translation. Mm. The people of God that he's addressing are not comfortable. They're not in their homeland. And that becomes significant, or it is significant, because he's, Peter is borrowing the verbiage from the Old Testament when the people of God, when the Israelites are exiled. Right. Yeah. They're out of Jerusalem. Uh, they're not in their homeland. And so he uses that same kind of verbiage to describe Christians because we're not, now it's not the old Jerusalem, uh, but we're not in the new Jerusalem. Right. And so this, this place is not our home. This is not uh, where we want to be. This is not our promised land. Uh, and so I think we need to learn from that when it comes to theonomy and it comes to the whole business of uh, we should be triumphant mm. and it doesn't make sense for us to be suffering. Well, Peter's talking about suffering and Peter's talking about uh, being uh, out of the New Jerusalem, if right, you will. Yeah. We're mm -hmm. a lot like the Old Testament saints when they were out of the Old Jerusalem. So I don't think it makes sense unless we're somehow maybe to give the benefit of the doubt, a theonomist would say, well, that's how it was then uh, for the Christians because Christianity was new, but over time it would take over maybe. But I, I guess I just, I'm a simpleton. I like applying first Peter uh, and preaching first Peter uh, and making it very relevant to suffering people. Now right. I have a hard time finding triumphalism uh, in the new Testament apart from Christ's return. Right. And I think until that cataclysmic event comes that we learn about in Second Peter, and Christ returns, I think we are going to be strangers and aliens. We're going to be sojourners and exiles until the new Jerusalem, and now we're getting into number, number 10. 10 yeah. The new Jerusalem uh, comes from above. Yeah. Uh, it comes from God. Here we have no lasting city. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 12 says it's the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, all of this, no doubt, 
anticipates what second Peter talks about, which is the destruction that will come. And all of this is relevant to pushing back against theonomy because this is not our forever home. Right. We're not transforming the culture. We're not redeeming the culture. It's an error to say somehow uh, even our work is redeemed and it's going to last forever, yeah. which is what people like Joseph Boots say. Uh, and I think they have an over-realized eschatology. Yeah. Instead of an already not yet, it is true we're citizens. It is true, even the author of Hebrews says, we've already come to Mount Zion. We've come to the New Jerusalem, and yet we haven't. Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to come until Christ returns in a cataclysmic way, as Second Peter would say. So over-realized eschatology and under-realized eschatology isn't good either, like in dispensationalism, mm. where somehow we're not citizens, somehow we're not a part or participating in the kingdom. Uh, we are, and yet we do await this great, re we do await the great return of Christ. And in the meantime, uh, we're not building his kingdom and we're not taking a dominion over. Uh, that's something that Christ and Christ alone can do now that the first Adam has failed. It's in the hands of the last Adam to be successful. He has been successful and he will actualize his dominion upon his second coming. Yeah. Well, Pat, we do need to wrap this episode up, uh, lest we have to split it into a couple episodes. Uh, but let's chat just for a minute, maybe, and uh, talk about what's the alternative to theonomy. This calls for a whole nother episode. Yeah, so we'll have to does. talk about that in another episode. But to put things very simply, uh, the alternative is not retreatism. Hmm. Uh, the alternative isn't some sort of go hide in a holy huddle, some kind sure, of hidden yeah. piety, because we're going to be accused of that, perhaps. That's not the alternative. That's not what we're recommending. But what we are recommending is for the church to understand what its calling is, and the church's mm. calling is to preach Christ. Yeah. The church's calling is not to redeem culture. The church's calling is not to transform culture. The church's calling is to preach Christ. And yet with that said, individuals have been called to all sorts of different vocations, all different uh, callings, though they be temporal. They're temporary. They're not eternal. And as we carry about our responsibilities in the different things God has called us to, we are called to love our neighbors. Right. And so I think Christians should be politically active. And yeah. I think Christians should be concerned about what's going on in the world around them, even though this is not the New Jerusalem. Right. Uh, it is Babylon, but we're to seek the good of Babylon, even if we're going to learn from Jeremiah, if you will, yeah. as strangers and aliens yep. in the New Covenant world. And so I'm very much... I'm very concerned about this temporal world. It's not an eternal concern, but it is a real concern. Right. Yeah. And so we're not calling for passivity. We're not calling for retreatism. We're calling for the church to be the church and preach Christ. And for Christians who are citizens of the heavenly kingdom yep. to know that they're also citizens of this kingdom that's not lasting. And yet they're to be caring, loving, compassionate citizens. And so I'm committed to both of these things even though it's hard because it's hard to be an exile and yeah. it's hard to be a sojourner. Uh, it's difficult. This is not our forever home. It's complicated. And yet it is where we are and we want to live for the glory of God where we are. Yeah. Well, we do want to wrap things up. We have a couple articles that we'll post in the show notes for this episode, and we trust you've been encouraged and edified as we've talked a little bit about theonomy so you can understand that a little bit more and why it is that we would say no to theonomy. 
That's it for this episode. We'll catch you next week on The Pactum. Mm-hmm.